welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. We read a few texts in preparation for this episode, The Cultural Importance of the Arts by the American philosopher Suzanne Langer, Oscar Wilde's preface to The Picture of Dorian Gray, commencement speeches by Leon Wieseltier, Neil Gaiman and David Cronenberg, Alfred Gell's The Art of Anthropology, and no doubt a couple more things that elude me now. All these texts have to do with art. More specifically, they deal with the problem of the utility or purpose of art, with the question, what is art for? Well, our answer is straightforward. Art is for nothing. It is, as Wilde famously put it, quite useless. That's why it's so essential in an age of technic bent on instrumentalizing all things. Today, art is being pulled apart by the four horsemen of the aesthetic apocalypse, not war, pestilence, famine, and death, With politics, artificial intelligence, commodification, and moralism, I could go on, but I'm out of horses and art is out of limbs. As everything accelerates, works of art become easier to overlook. They appear on the periphery of our fields of vision, blurred objects glimpsed briefly on the roadside as we flash by. Art belongs to a slow world, another world, the real world. In its perfect uselessness, it asks us to stop and become useless ourselves. The call is all too easy to ignore. In this episode, we try to provide some reasons for heeding it. A quick note to the tabletop role players out there, you who make up such a surprisingly large portion of our audience. In this episode, I talk briefly about the recent debacle at Wizards of the Coast, their attempt to revoke the open gaming license in order to control and appropriate all D&D-related quote-unquote content. It appears that since we recorded this, the company has given up on its nefarious plan due to overwhelming pushback from players. This is a good thing, but it dates our recording a bit. Speaking of things moving too fast. Nevertheless, the two YouTube videos I mention, both by James Raggi, creator of Lamentations of the Flame Princess, remain supremely relevant. I'd say not just for gamers, but for anyone who values artistic expression. You'll find links to those in the show notes. I'll skip the usual Patreon pitch because we inadvertently fit a brief one into the conversation proper. I do, however, want to thank everyone who supports Weird Studies on Patreon and elsewhere. So what is art for? What is the usefulness of useless things? Is that manly enough for you, the clap? Uh, I didn't hear your clap at all, so oh, which I seldom do because uh, either Zoom's sound correction technology is cutting it out, or else your feeble, flabby little hands 
are just sort of bonking together ineffectually, unable to make a sound. Yeah. It's like fish bumping into each other. Exactly. Exactly. You know, ladies and gentlemen who are listening to this, you can't see this, but as I'm looking into my Zoom computer screen, it's very odd when JF tries to clap, watching this sort of gelatinous hand shapes uh, sliding around one another. Sometimes it appears passing through one another. Phil. And, uh, and yet, and the thing is, it's so weird that he keeps trying to pretend that he's clapping. Yeah, I just make a popping sound with my mouth, and that's what exactly. I actually use for syncing. Yeah. You know, for five years, you've been trying to pretend that you're clapping, but this morning I'm calling you out on it. I know. I know you're not clapping. I know you don't have functional hands. No. I know, in fact, that your entire body is a fiction. Well, it's... For the purposes of taxation. <laughs> exactly. It's gelatinous at this stage. Yes. It's not completely ethereal as it once was. Now it's like a jelly. Um, and my, my tentacles are slowly growing fingers. Give me some time, Phil. This is what that Patreon money's for. <laughs> Yeah, so that's our Patreon pitch. Please donate so that JF can attain a fully human form. Yes. <laughs> I think that qualifies for GoFundMe, doesn't it? <laughs> we have a picture of your gelatinous form. Just, just an amorphous blob in a bathtub. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's like day one. And then day 30 is like, you know, you can kind of see it, it looks like... Uh, Oh, I'm remembering something no one else will remember. I'm remembering a scene from The Last Starfighter. You ever watch that? You were a little too no. old to watch that piece of crap. Although, I want to say that Randy Quaid was in that. Ah, I don't know. I feel like Randy Quaid was in a lot of B science fiction back in the day. Possibly. Possibly. Um, I'm, I'm probably wrong about that. I'm probably never in a science fiction film in his life. I, I don't know who Randy Quaid is. I, uh, I confess. I know Dennis Quaid. He was in a movie called Inner Space, which was pretty cool, about a guy who gets injected into Martin Short. You ever seen that one? <laughs> who among us does not wish to be injected into Martin Short? So I uh, wish to be injected into his lymph nodes. <laughs> so um, I can offer you great power, Martin Short. <laughs> Just inject me into your lymph nodes. Boy, we're off to a weird start this morning. Well, let me, let me just switch Inge gears here. Injecting a note of body horror into what is supposed to be a conversation about art. Yet another conversation about art. One of our texts is, uh, is a commencement speech that David Cronenberg gave. And at the end, he kind of hints at a little bit of body horror. He says cinema is the body. And of course, he's the body horror guy. So it's not totally totally off the mark but i wanted to start okay we, we we discussed before we started recording listeners and uh, we agreed that we will both read something as a kind of gambit to begin our conversation i am mm. going to read the preface from picture of dorian gray by oscar wilde so this is a text that wilde wrote on the publication of his novel in 1891 he was anticipating rightly some pushback to his rather controversial and decadent masterpiece. That book would make a great episode. It's so cool. But the preface is what I'll read. It's very short. I've got it all here on one page. It's just a series of aphorisms, pithy kind of observations or arguments that Wilde is making in favor of a particular view of art, which Phil and I have been, I think, championing on this show 
And we know the reason we have to keep doing these recurring kind of episodes on art is because art is under attack today, you know, mm -hmm. from all fronts. So here we go. I'm going to read this preface to the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, and hopefully it'll play into the conversation, although it might just kind of haunt the rest of the show. Here we go. The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or a new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest as the lowest form of criticism is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these there is hope. They are the elect for whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written, that is all. The 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass. The 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his own face in a glass. The moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything. Even things that are true can be proved. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express everything. Thought and language are to the artist instruments of an art. Vice and virtue are to the artist materials for an art. From the point of view of form, the type of all the arts is the art of the musician. From the point of view of feeling, the actor's craft is the type. All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows that the work is new, complex, and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. So that's it. Nice. That's the first bit. Now, Phil will read something. And then we'll, much like my gelatinous hands, these two little texts will slap against each other. Maybe in the background, maybe in the foreground. Sort of slide yeah. into one another with an audible schlupping sound. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's see here. So this is an author who I discovered while tumbling down an anthropology research rabbit hole over the summer. Alfred Gell, who's a British anthropologist, I believe deceased, but somebody who was well-respected in his day and well-remembered, at least in certain quarters. And I have to say, very much in a, a mode of praise, I like his style much more than the usual academic standard of writing. He attains a certain wit and even dash. So I'm not hating on this dude. And he is at least raising something that is logically inescapable for those of us who are citizens of the modern. 
But I'm bringing it up for a very particular reason, which I will reveal at the end. So I'm not going to read this entire whole first section of the essay I'm talking about. This is chapter five of a book called The Art of Anthropology. And the chapter is The Technology of Enchantment and the Enchantment of Technology. Don't get your hopes up by the title. <laughs> His first sentence is, The complaint is commonly heard that art is a neglected topic in present-day social anthropology, especially in Britain. And he's like, okay, so like, what's the problem with talking about art in the context of anthropology? And he's like, well, social anthropology is sort of anti-art. Not, as he says, that anthropological wisdom favors knocking down the National Gallery and turning the site into a car park. What I mean, he writes, is only that the attitude of the art-loving public toward the contents of the National Gallery, the Museum of Mankind, and so on, aesthetic awe bordering on the religious, is an unredeemably ethnocentric attitude, however laudable in all other respects. And he goes on to talk about what he calls the attitude of aestheticism, or the attitude of universal aestheticism. And he points out as culture-bound, that is to say, our respect for artworks that hang in the National Gallery or elsewhere, our feeling that such things speak to context outside of their own, the idea that they are anything more really than the purely contingent actions of people who share certain language games within certain cultures at particular places and times, the idea that art can be anything more than that is aestheticism. And, and I should should probably note before you read that uh, Wilde was part of a movement called aestheticism and was an, right. himself a self-proclaimed aesthete. So, Indeed. So it's a good clash. Right. So major stumbling block in the path of the anthropology of art, he writes, the ultimate aim of which must be the dissolution of art in the same way that the dissolution of religion, politics, economics, kinship, and all other forms under which human experience is presented to the socialized mind must be the ultimate aim of anthropology in general. So, in a nutshell, the job of anthropology, and perhaps we might say the social sciences generally, perhaps all of education, from a certain point of view, is disillusionment to break us out of the narcosis, a spell of our socialized minds, minds that have been socialized, for example, to believe that art means something more than the very limited condition that I just described. And he goes on to say, it seems to me incontrovertible that the anthropological theory of religion depends on what has been called by Peter Berger methodological atheism. This is the methodological principle that whatever the analyst's own religious convictions, or lack of them, theistic and mystical beliefs are subjected to sociological scrutiny on the assumption that they are not literally true. Only once this assumption is made do the intellectual maneuvers characteristic of anthropological analyses of religious systems become possible. That is, the demonstration of linkages between religious ideas and the structure of corporate groups, social hierarchies, and so on. Religion becomes an emergent property of the relations between the various elements in the social system, derivable not from the condition that genuine religious truths exist, but solely from the condition that societies exist. So, that's the statement of religion in its place of uh, social anthropology. And he goes on to say, unless I am very much mistaken, I am writing for a readership which is composed in the main of devotees of the art cult, and moreover, for one which shares an assumption, by no means an incorrect one, that I too belong to the faith, just as 
If we were a religious congregation and I were delivering a sermon, you would assume that I was no atheist. If I were to discuss some exotic religious belief system from the standpoint of methodological atheism, that would present no problem, even to non-atheists, simply because nobody expects a sociologist of religion to adopt the premises of the religion he discusses. Indeed, he is obliged not to do so. But the equivalent attitude to the one we take toward religious beliefs in sociological discourse is much harder to attain in the context of discussions of aesthetic values. The equivalent of methodological atheism in the religious domain would, in the domain of art, be methodological philistinism. And that is a bitter pill very few would be willing to swallow. Methodological philistinism consists of taking an attitude of resolute indifference towards the aesthetic value of works of art. The aesthetic value that they have, either indigenously or from the standpoint of universal aestheticism. Because to admit this kind of value is equivalent to admitting, so to speak, that religion is true, and just as this admission makes the sociology of religion impossible, the introduction of aesthetics, the theology of art, into the sociology and anthropology of art immediately turns the enterprise into something else. And he goes on to say, basically, there is no escape from the logic of this position. What sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If the first step to an enlightened understanding of world religions is to disbelieve all of them, so too must our understanding of art. And he says, basically, like, you know, this is in some ways a painful and regrettable operation, but it must be so. Mm -hmm. The main thing I want to say is that I find it quaint that he thought he had to apologize for that shit. Yeah. Because when he says, almost all of my readers are members of the, what he calls the art cult, and he is premising this entire essay on the idea that this will be a difficult truth, like a hard pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. No one writing for an audience of fellow academics in 2023 has to say any such thing. In fact, quite the opposite. To speak of art the way we do, which of course, anybody who's listened to the show knows, is 180 degrees opposite from that methodological philistinism that Gell talks about. Obviously, we don't agree. But we're the ones who have to say why we think art isn't just what Gell says it is. The burden of proof, as it were, is on us. Yeah. And I wanted to bring this up because, you know, you said at the beginning, like, we talk a lot about art, and we, every now and then we do kind of a topics-based show that isn't so much rooted in a particular you know, film or piece of writing or whatever, but where we just kind of stretch out. We want to talk about a large issue. Well, I guess I would say the large issue, if we were to try and nail it down anywhere, would be like, what is art for? Yeah. Right? That's always a question that comes up when you try to talk to people from whom aesthetic sensitivity seems to have been removed as if by outpatient surgery. This happens a lot in the United States where people bluntly want to know, well, what is the point of art? Yeah. What does it do? And if you can't think of an answer to that, then the ineluctable conclusion is that art is valueless to society and unworthy of support, financial support, ideological support, institutional support, etc. And in case you think that this is just a pack of yahoos who think such things, the administration of my university have made it absolutely clear that they are prepared to tolerate art and formal attempts at understanding art 
insofar as it looks kind of like a STEM field. If you can make it look STEMmy, if you can come up with results, whatever the fuck results mean when we're talking about art, then you're good. Yeah. But not otherwise. And such people want to know. Okay, you know, I need, I'm answerable to the Indiana State Legislature. I have to decide where state funds allocated are going to go. And you're telling me that I should continue to buy art books for the library. Okay, why? What good will that do? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm using the art books thing as an example. Library budgets, there's a whole political issue around that. But suffice it to say, if you can't answer the question what it's for... The terms of that discussion, of that conversation, have already put you in a role where you have to answer the question and concede in advance that that's a question worth asking about art. But again, reading this essay that was written in the 1970s and thinking about now, in the 70s, Gell had to do some heavy lifting to get past the intuitive and emotional barriers that we would have to accepting his idea of methodological Philistinism. Nowadays, on the contrary, such arguments have been naturalized, not only by college administrators, but by everybody in the so-called educated world. And so we wanted to have a conversation about this. lines of defense to defend art, mainly they consist in instrumentalizing it in some way. And this is precisely what Wilde in his preface avoids right. at all costs. But he does it for very good reason, and hopefully we'll get to those. 
strangely, like Phil, we were talking yesterday and Phil suggested we title this episode, What is Art For? And it just so happens that last week I was in Atlanta doing a talk called What is Art For? So I've got a bunch of shit here, a bunch of, uh, <laughs> got a full clip here, but I don't really need or want to go down the same rabbit hole I went down last week because I want this conversation to kind of emerge. But there was a, a one of my first slides was a list. I call it the five E's, the five reasons uh, or justifications for art that have been uh, commonly, routinely given in the last hundred years to defend it against the onslaught of predatory capitalist technocratic culture. I call it the five E's, but it's it's a total coincidence that the, all these words start with E. Uh, and there may be other words. I just stopped when I had five E words. So there may be other ones, but let's look at these five justifications. Education, right? Uh, people say art is an educational tool. It's a great way to teach. Incorporating art into your pedagogical kind of methodology enables you to more efficiently convey information to students. Or you could extend that. You could say art preserves knowledge from a certain time. You can learn a lot about um, you know, the early 19th century by reading Jane Austen. There's a kind of anthropological or historical reason to uh, preserve art and share art. My favorite example is how American educators are always going to the well with that baby Mozart. Right, shit. right. You baby I mean? Mozart, right. Yeah. So like the idea that if you play classical music to your kids when they're little, they'll have improved standardized test scores. And I would like to point out that that is more degraded even than the version of education that you're talking, because the idea that you would read Jane Austen in order to understand the socioeconomic conditions of Britain in the early 19th century, that at least is learning something. Yeah, yeah, right? for sure, for but sure. standardized test, a standardized test is not a subject. <laughs> it's not a field. It is the ultimate sort of like, it's what knowledge becomes in the realm of technique. Right, right, right. Where it simply becomes the serialization of bits of knowledge into various combinatorial arrays. And that's what music is supposed to help you with. I should kind of say right off the bat that all these things I'm going to list, and there's only five, I'm not going to go through them at length, but they're true about art. So art is educational. It does have that component, that aspect to it. The second one I had was edification, which is art makes you a better person. And that's a, a robust kind of uh, argument that's been made over and over again, that people who consume art, become better people. You learn about morality, you learn empathy. And so no doubt there's some truth to that. But of course, you know, Theodore Adorno put that one to bed rather succinctly yeah. when he said, uh, what was it? All poetry is barbaric after Auschwitz. Is yeah. that what he said? Or to read poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. Yeah. Well, right. Perhaps he said to write. It's one of those bits of intellectual culture folklore that gets passed around without Yeah, we'd have to precise knowledge. We'd yeah. have to track down. But, you know, the, the, the gist of it is rather clear. It's the thing is that some of the, the engineers and architects of the final solution were themselves huge art fans and very cultivated men for whom art had done very little in terms of moral edification. Right. Another one is self-expression or just expression, the idea that art is a great way for people to express themselves, to express their points of view. Suzanne Langer, in a text that we read in preparation for this, puts that one to bed in an interesting way. It's not so much that self-expression isn't a part of the artistic process, but that, as Jung would say, and here I'm referring listeners back to our article on Jung's idea of art, is that self-expression is simply one of art's tools for making you create it, right? 
The second line in Wilde's uh, preface is, to reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. So the artist might be going into it thinking, I will write a song that will make clear my feelings about this, that, or the other issue. But of course, for Jung, insofar as the final work is a work of art, the artwork was simply using the artist's opinions and views to manifest itself. We can dig deeper into that later. But certainly self-expression has been used as a justification for art. And it's a way in schools, often it's like, uh, make a picture to express your feelings about, you know, summertime or the, sure. the summer vacation coming up and that sort of thing. And that's part, that's, all of these are actually part of art. Escape. And this is the opium of the people thing, right? Or the vulgar interpretation of Marx's idea of art, which is that right. art gives us an escape from the drudgery of like everyday life and um, the shittiness of the world. And no doubt it does that as well. And finally, entertainment, which is derived from a French word, entretenir, entretien, which means to maintain, you know, the maintenance of docile minds in a, in a world that values conformity of above all else. To be entertained is, to, is probably no greater sin than to be entertained. <laughs> I'm joking. But like the, the idea is that entertainment, of course, is very close to escapism. It's the fact that it's a diversion, right? Art provides diversion. It's a way of filling up your free time, your leisure time. It's a way of beautifying, of decorating your life, ornamenting your life. So those are common arguments that have been made in favor of art. So these things. And I, I, again, I want to stress that all I think all of these things are at play in art. The question is, why has none of these been strong enough, powerful enough to protect art against the type of onslaught that it's experiencing now at... Uh, well, your university, among other places. Yeah. Yeah. So what is art for if it's not for these five things is the question. Indeed. Yeah. And Oscar Wilde tells us very bluntly what he thinks. It isn't for anything. His, the last line of his preface is, all art is quite useless. Yeah. Now, I'm surprised that you would fully endorse that view, because I think you've said some things in the past that have been somewhat critical of the sort of la poulard, art for art's sake kind of ideology. Mm. On the surface, I, I understand why you think that. But the thing is that Wilde's amoral aestheticism in this little text is prefacing a book which is intensely moral, right? The Picture of Dorian Gray is almost a kind of morality play. It's about an, a, a handsome young dandy who has a portrait made of himself by a painter who's essentially in love with him. And as the dandy descends into a life of debauchery and vice and uh, eventually even, if I remember correctly, crime, like murder, as he descends into that, he remains handsome and youthful, but the picture ages and takes on a monstrous and grotesque appearance to the extent that the picture has to be hidden. The idea is that concealed in this preface is Wilde's moral claim for art. It's that by valuing the useless, we combat instrumentality. There's a line where he says, they are the elect for whom beautiful things mean only beauty. And of course, this has been interpreted as meaning that Wilde simply valued pleasant things, appealing, beautiful, decorative things, because he was a big fan of decorative art. But what I read in Wilde, and this comes clear if you read things like The Soul of Man Under Socialism or De Profundis, 
is that what Wilde is talking about is a reorientation of the person towards the transcendent. And art, by escaping the logic of instrumentality, by escaping the logic that would see value only in instrumentality, gives us our conduit, our window upon the transcendent. He capitalizes the word beauty when he says, they are the elect for whom beautiful things mean only beauty. And what I read that to mean is that Wilde is saying that art has a profound religious function that lies precisely in its being simply what it is. Because in being simply what it is, the creation of beautiful things, it reminds us that things are something before they are the coded objects of utility that they become in our modern epistem. That's why I agree with Wilde, that there's a deeper reading, I think, that's necessary. Does that make sense? It does. And it's really interesting because there's a similar kind of philosophical wrangle that one gets into in, I'm sorry, I keep talking about Zen. Koto Sawaki, who's known as Homeless Koto, he was a Zen Buddhist priest who was Homeless Koto because he was never associated with a temple and had something of a kind of vagabond, the saint as bum, kind of had that sort of vibe. Dharma bum. Yeah, a real Dharma bum. And he didn't write so much as deliver aphorisms, and they're very pithy and blunt. They pack a punch. His collected aphorisms are well worth seeking out and reading. In any event, probably his best known aphorism is saying Zazen is good for nothing, Zazen being Zen meditation. And in Soto Zen, which Sawaki represented, Zazen is the alpha and omega of Zen practice. Like Soto is very, very focused on just sitting. So why would he say that Zazen is good for nothing? And we can say, well, you know, that's typical Zen antinomianism. But there's a kind of philosophical argument for why you would say something like that, is that if you value Zazen, you say that it's this valuable thing. Okay, so why do you value it? What is it good for? And then you've already fallen into the trap when you try to answer that. Just as I was saying before about answering somebody who asks you why we should pay for art. What's the function of art? Merely to answer the question is already to accede in advance to the warrants of the question, which is that we need to find a use. And so if you say, what is Zazen good for? Then we proceed down the same path. We might say, oh, it's good for your heart. It's true, actually. There's a decent amount of medical research showing that meditation is good for your heart health. Or we might say it makes you a better person, right? Or whatever. In fact, some of the justifications would be rather similar to justifications we would come up with for art. But the problem with that is saying that art or Zazen is good for this, that, or the other thing is precisely to turn your back on that transcendent level. Yeah. Because the transcendent, logically speaking, cannot be contingent on or dependent upon stuff that we think and do. That's why it's transcendent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like what if a new scientific study came out and said, actually, it turns out that Zazen is bad for your heart. Which it has. I mean, that's some of the controversy around uh, mindfulness and different forms of meditation has precisely been this, is that it doesn't necessarily 
cure your neuroses. In fact, it might make it exacerbate them. Worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's an actual situation that people have been dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. So then does the state of scientific research kind of hold all the cards here? No, it does not. Zazen has something to do with concepts that although Zen Buddhism is insistently anti-transcendentalist in its rhetoric and its structure, nevertheless, all of the things that are a part of Zazen, Buddha mind, infinite compassion, the cultivation of wisdom, prajna, the treating of the human with something absolute, something that absolutely transcends the level of the human. Even just from a merely logical point of view, you can't answer a question about the transcendental realm with an answer from the human domain, the imminent frame, as Charles Taylor would say. Uh, what's that? It's from Vogelin. You're imminentizing the eschaton, right? Right. And so, yeah, it's true. And we should stress this. This is a very important distinction. Is that Zen is not a transcendentalist religion. It's much closer in Western terms to something like a search for pure imminence. But when imminence is, I'm using a term here from Deleuze, his last work was called Pure Eminence. And he goes on about the power of pure eminence and this wonder. And people have had trouble figuring out what he means. And of course, it's because when you add the word pure before eminence, suddenly your eminence has become transcendent. <laughs> it's become yeah. something that's not achievable within the kind of paradigmatic logic of the everyday, of the instrumental yes. logic of the everyday. It's going beyond. Monasticism is obviously central in Zen, but it's also central in Orthodox Christianity in the West. And monasticism is precisely, I think, predicated on this idea that there is an, a worldliness that one must go beyond in order to touch on the transcendent. And then when you come back into the world, it is with a, a Buddha mind, right? A mind that somehow, like the lotus flower in the marsh, is somehow in and yet not tainted by the contingencies of the worldly. And that sounds grandiose, but it's actually, you know, that is something that comes close to, if you look at religion through a comparative lens and you look at it honestly, I think that it comes close to being something universal in terms of how religious sentiment, you know, manifests in human beings since forever. You were talking about anthropology and, I, and we, yesterday we were talking about Bronze Age archaeology and the, just the wonderful kinship one might feel reading about, or I guess even more intensely encountering like Bronze Age grave sites, you know, in Europe and seeing the care and the aesthetic uh, attention that people 4,000 years ago in Northern Europe gave to their dead. It is very difficult, I think. And it's not, it might be logically necessary within the paradigm, but I think it is very difficult on a personal level to divest ourselves of our feeling of kinship with the people who left these marks in the earth when we encounter them. The tendency, the human tendency, and I don't think this is simply a modern thing, the human tendency is to do what Werner Herzog does in Cave of Forgotten Dreams when he recognizes, honors, in fact, emphasizes the feeling of kinship that he feels confronted with the artworks of people who lived, in his case, 30,000 years ago. I want to go back to this idea that you were saying at the beginning, the, the typical, the kind of almost cliche now, and yet you know, ubiquitous CEO or president or whatever who insists that we justify 
any support for the art before it continues. But you're going to have to show me the results here. So yeah. the great irony in that is that the world in which someone lives such that statements like those make any sense. It's not a world that's given to us. For instance, in the case of Gal, is it Gal or Gel? Gel, yeah, Gel. I'm thinking about my body again, Gel. Maybe it's uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's Gel. Yeah, I don't know the gentleman. Okay, personally. so let's call him. It's probably Gel, Professor Gel. Right? He starts by saying it's like incontrovertible that we need to make this move towards methodological philistinism. We must do this. It's so obvious if we're going to have anthropology. We have to dissolve everything. Economics, we have to dissolve um, politics, we have to dissolve religion, we have to dissolve art. We can't protect art. We can't hold art out. Yes. What makes it so obvious for him, or the thoughts or the ideas that make that obvious for them, do not come from anthropology. Anthropology does not provide the reasons why we should say that these components of a society have only contingent existence. The argument for that, the logic for that, comes from a kind of narrative apprehension of what it is to be a human being in this universe. And it comes from a metaphysical assumption about what this universe is and its fundamentals. Yeah. And that is something that can only be given to us by art. It's hmm. the story we live in. The story is an aesthetic thing. Yeah. There's a passage here in the Langer piece we wrote, uh, we read, sorry, I wish we'd written it. It'd be a good co-authored piece. Um, <laughs> Suzanne Langer wrote this essay on the cultural importance of the arts. This appeared in Journal of Aesthetic Education, 1966. And this particular passage is on page 11 of her essay. She writes, the influence of the arts on human life goes deeper than the intellectual level. As language actually gives form to our sense experience, grouping our impressions around those things which have names and fitting sensations to the qualities that have adjectival names and so on, the arts we live with, our picture books and stories and the music we hear, actually form our emotive experience. Every generation has its styles of feeling. One age shudders and blushes and faints, another swaggers, still another is godlike in a universal indifference. Professor Gell. <laughs> These styles in actual emotion are not insincere. They are largely unconscious, determined by many social causes, but shaped by artists, usually popular artists of the screen, the jukebox, the shop window, and the picture magazine. Uh, and then she has a, a kind of pithy parenthetical. She says, that rather than an incitement to crime is my objection to the comics. <laughs> and then she says, Erwin Edmund remarks in one of his books that our emotions are largely Shakespeare's poetry. And with the point being here is that before you get up in the morning and decide that you're going to do something, you need a reason to do it. And reason won't give you a reason to do anything. Mm. What gives you a reason to do something is the story you live in. And the story any age lives in is shaped by artists, whether they are artists whose work hang in galleries or artists who stand on, on the political stage or artists of the everyday. The point is that there's an aesthetic creation to the making of a world, which we then take for granted. And art, if nothing else, if you want to answer what art is for, one thing art is for is for messing with the code of that narrative assumption that underlies our everyday life. 
And this is what David Cronenberg's commencement speech that we read is about, I think, when he says that art must be a crime. What he means by crime is that it goes beneath the assumptions, beneath the kind of just so ideas that kind of populate our heads. It goes beneath that and it goes into the kind of dark hummus that undergirds us in order to draw out aspects of the universe that have been occluded by our assumptions. And that's not something that anthropology can do. It's not something that sociology can do. It's something that art does. Sociology begins after art has done its work of creating a world. Here, I'm thinking a bit like Martin Heidegger, but anyways, I'm going to stop there just to let you react. There's more to say. That's great. That's great. I'm going to say parenthetically that one of my least favorite justifications for any methodological direction in any scholarly pursuit is that such and so is a bad idea because that idea, if true, would give people in a given academic field nothing to do. Right. <laughs> so, if uni- so if universal aestheticism has a point, then sociologists or social anthropologists have nothing to do. Yeah. To which I say so much the worse for social anthropologists. And, and who's to say that they would have nothing to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, quite so. But I'm just saying, it's a bad argument. And yet one that I encounter constantly on a variety of topics and occasions. sit down a little more on Suzanne Langer's idea of art, which I find really compelling. The way she answers the question, what art is for? Because so far we've been talking about like the question itself, what it is to ask for the function and value, the instrumentality of art, right? We've been interrogating the question. But I can imagine listeners listening to our conversation and thinking like, yeah, but I wanted an answer to that question. Mm Mm-hmm. I actually find Langer's answer to this question really compelling. So I'm going to pivot to this by reading it once again from Wilde's preface to Portrait of Dorian Gray, where he says it's actually half of one of his bon mots. From the point of view of form, the type of all the arts is the art of the musician. That's an interesting thing to say, right? Mm-hmm. From the point of view of form, the type of all the arts is the art of the musician. So let's kind of hold that in mind as a, as a koan, as a productive irritant to our minds. I'm going to read a passage from Art as Experienced by John Dewey. I believe Dewey and Langer are at least in the same general school of philosophy. I believe they're both pragmatists, although I, this is the first piece of Langer's I've read, so I'm not entirely sure I'm right about Langer, that. Langer, I think she, you could make that argument. I think that I mean, I'm not sure about how, where she fits in the lineage, but I know that her teacher was Whitehead. Yeah. But I also know that she drew a lot on the pragmatists just from having read New, uh, Philosophy in the New Key. Well, I have instantly fallen in love with Susan Langer's way of thinking about art and have ordered Philosophy in a New Key. Finally! Jesus. I know, it's taken me a while. And so I want to get all up in that philosophy. But anyway, I'm not reading... From that book, I'm reading from Art as Experienced by John Dewey, and this is page 
245, at least the edition that I have. This is in the chapter, The Varied Substance of the Arts, where Dewey is thinking almost in a McLuhanish vein about how the different senses deployed by the different arts, the different faculties that the various arts subsist on, influence those art forms, and like obviously, but he has some really beautiful ways of talking about what it is that music does. He's talking about the ear and the eye. Visual arts are reading versus listening to music, and he says the ear and the eye complement one another. The eye gives the scene in which things go on and on which changes are projected, leaving it still a scene even amid tumult and turmoil. The ear, taking for granted the background furnished by cooperative action of vision and touch, brings home to us changes as changes, for sounds are always effects. Effects of the clash, the impact, and resistance of the forces of nature. They express these forces in terms of what they do to one another when they meet, the way they change one another, and change the things that are the theater of their endless conflicts. The lapping of water, the murmur of brooks, the rushing and whistling of wind, the creaking of doors, the rustling of leaves, the swishing and cracking of branches, the thud of fallen objects, the sobs of depression and the shouts of victory. What are these, together with all noises and sounds, but immediate manifestations of changes brought about by the struggle of forces? Every stir of nature is affected by means of vibrations, but an even uninterrupted vibration makes no sound. There must be interruption, impact, and resistance. Music, having sound as its medium, thus necessarily expresses, in a concentrated way, the shocks and instabilities, the conflicts and resolutions that are the dramatic changes enacted upon the more enduring background of nature and human life. The tension and struggle has its gatherings of energy, its discharges, its attacks and defenses, its mighty warrings and its peaceful meetings, its resistances and resolutions. And out of these things, music weaves its web. Mm, I yeah. love that passage. It is such a beautiful expression of what is happening abstractly in music and how music, in some sense, is laminated onto reality, not some airy nothing, as often it seems as if it is, music being the most ethereal and intangible of arts, but in fact, something almost like a stencil, as uh, Susan Sontag put it, a stencil from the real, mm. a direct emanation from the real. And indeed, that was somewhat sort of Schopenhauer's way of thinking, although I don't want to get into all that. But I bring this up because there's a passage in Langer's short essay that gives me a very similar kind of feeling. I think I know the passage you are looking for. Read the passage it, what I read reminds you of, and then I will read the passage that it reminded me of. It's the passage about the form, what a form is. Is that what you're okay, thinking? Let's, yeah, yeah, well, that's one of them. Let's hear it. So what do we mean by form? What does... What do you mean, Phil, by form? What does Wilde mean when he says, from the point of view of form, music is the type? Or, for that matter, Langer, who defines art as the practice of creating perceptible forms expressive of human feelings, which I think is a wonderful definition. Yeah, a wonderful definition. The practice of creating perceptible forms expressive of human feeling. And what I love about that is that it has the two key words from Wilde's aphorism. Right? Because the second part you didn't read is he says, from the point of view of form, the type of all art, uh, I'm remembering now, is the uh, art of the musician. 
By which I assume he means something like archetype. Yeah, the archetype. That's exactly what he means. Yeah. He something says, like Pater's all art aspires to the condition of music. Exactly. And he says, from the point of view of feeling, the actor's craft is the type. And you can see the actor's craft as the most concrete, maybe, mm. uh, form of art. But the dichotomy here, or the poles, are form and feeling, right? Yeah. Form and yeah. feeling. And it's in between those that art happens. Wilde isn't saying, nor is Langer saying, that form is more present in music than in acting. What he's saying is that you see form most clearly in music, but it is also present in acting. Just as feeling is as present in music as it is in acting, but you see it most clearly in the acting. Yeah. That's a good yeah. explanation. I right. like that. So I, I love that there's this kind of synergy here between our texts. As for what a form is, Langer on page seven of her essay has this passage I'll read quickly. The word form, she writes, has several current uses. Most of them have some relation to the sense in which I'm using it here, though a few, such as a form to be filled for tax purposes or a mere matter of form, are fairly remote, being quite specialized. Since we are speaking of art, it might be good to point out that the meaning of stylistic pattern, the sonata form or the sonnet form, is not the one I am assuming here. I am using the word, form, in a simpler sense, which it has when you say, on a foggy night, that you see dimly moving forms in the mist. One of them emerges clearly, and it is the form of a man. The trees are gigantic forms. The rills of rain trace sinuous forms on the windowpane. The rills are not fixed things. They are forms of motion. When you watch gnats weaving in the air, or flocks of birds wheeling overhead, you see dynamic forms, forms made by motion. It is in this sense of an apparition, I'll come back to that term later after you've read your part. It is in this mm. sense of an apparition given to our perception that a work of art is a form. It may be a permanent form, like a building, or a vase, or a picture, or a transient dynamic form, like a melody, or a dance, or even a form given to imagination, like the passage of purely imaginary apparent events that constitutes a literary work. But it is always a perceptible, self-identical whole. Like a natural being, it has a character of organic unity, self-sufficiency, individual reality. And it is thus, as an appearance, or apparition, that a work of art is good or bad, or perhaps only rather poor. As an appearance, not as a comment on things beyond it in the world, nor as a reminder of them. So the form is like the thingliness of the work of art. The way the work of art exists in itself, separate from certainly separate for one of its social construction. Even right. though it needs to be constructed socially, once achieved, it has its own form, just as you have your own form, despite the fact that you are a fruit of evolution, Phil. And probably the- I've the, always thought I am the pinnacle of evolution. Yeah, you're, you're, the you're, final fruit. You're a very juicy fruit of evolution, I'll say that. The ripest of fruits. The lowest hanging. <laughs> 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 I'm like one of those apples that falls off the tree and decomposes and then a deer wanders by and gets drunk by eating it. <laughs> All right, where were you going to go? Um, well, one thing I want to comment on just sort of parenthetically is when Langer writes that it is as an appearance, in other words, in its form yeah. by which we can judge a 
work of art to be good or bad, not as a comment on things in the world or a reminder of them. I would like to point out in passing that contemporary or modern aesthetics, the consensus aesthetics of our society holds that art precisely is yes. evaluatable in terms of how it points to things beyond itself. That right. what Langer is talking about is what normally I think in the academy these days would be pilloried as formalism, yeah. which I talked a little bit about in my introduction to the Evil Dad episode we did a couple of episodes back. It will come as no surprise to listeners of the show. I have a good deal to say about formalism and positive to say about it. But uh, in passing, I will note that this is a sort of thing that at one point seemed self-evident, and now you have to kind of defend it. Mm -hmm. The idea that what art conveys primarily is forms, and it is on the basis of how it presents or expresses forms to our perception and awareness that is to be understood, appreciated, debated, etc. That is uh, perhaps a surprising idea for many people. But getting back to John Dewey, the aesthetics that Langer's presenting here is very much consonant with Dewey's. Dewey, in his marvelous account of how music kind of does what it does, is talking precisely about how forms and their abstract energies, their clash and collision or sliding together or gliding apart or whatever, things for which our language is entirely unfitted to describe. But music does it perfectly, mm -hmm. right? And this is another of Langer's main points, that language doesn't do very well with feeling, but art is entirely made up of the organizing and making comprehensible of feeling. Um, I'm getting lost in the internal parentheses of this extremely <laughs> long sentence that I am uttering. I'm actually going to jump ahead and read the bit that really did strike me as similar to what Dewey is writing. This is where... She has been talking about how philosophers, especially philosophers of the type that she was most acquainted with, mid-century Anglo-American philosophers of a positivist bent, she talks about how philosophers are always discounting feeling as something that shouldn't really even concern an educated person or a philosophical mind, because feelings are entirely inadequate to representation in language. Yeah. Language doesn't work well with feelings. Feelings are irrational. And so positivist philosopher might say so much the worse for feelings. Let's do away with them. They will simply get in the way of the functioning of pure reason, right? right. But she points out that, however, it's quite mistaken to believe that because language renders feeling as a vague, inchoate mass, that that's what feelings actually are. She writes, human feeling is a fabric, not a vague mass. This is on page nine of her essay. It has an intricate dynamic pattern, possible combinations and new emergent phenomena. It is a pattern of organically interdependent and interdetermined tensions and resolutions, a pattern of almost infinitely complex activation and cadence. Mm-hmm. It belongs to the whole gamut of our sensibility, the sense of straining thought, all mental attitude and motor set. Those are the deeper reaches that underlie the surface waves of our emotion and make human life a life of feeling instead of an unconscious metabolic existence interrupted by feelings. Yes, I love that part. 
And then she brings it on home where she writes, it is, I think, this dynamic pattern that finds its formal expression in the arts. The expressiveness of art is like that of a symbol, not that of an emotional symptom. Yeah. It is as a formulation of feeling for our conception that a work of art is properly said to be expressive. Here, I think that uh, you probably have more to say, but just as a point of clarity, I think that it's important to underscore the distinction between what Langer is calling feeling or feelings and emotions. Because in her language, mm -hmm. emotions are packaged feelings, feelings for which we have a word. For example, joy, right? Joy, we all know what that is. I can make a picture that represents joy, or I can just say the word joy. I'm achieving the same thing so long as you know what I mean. But she says here, right before the passage you read, the words whereby we refer to feeling only name very general kinds of inner experience. Because by feeling, really, at the deepest level, she means inner experience, which is, like you said, like you just read now, a fabric, not a vague mass. There's a weird kind of topography to the world of feeling mm, that right. is not irrational. It's just impossible to represent with everyday discursive language. It's possible to represent it with poetic language, though, she would say. But anyways, the words whereby we refer to feeling only name very general kinds of inner experience, excitement, joy, sorrow, love, hate, etc. But there is no language to describe just how one joy differs, sometimes radically, from another. The real nature of feeling is something language as such as discursive symbolism, and discursive symbolism is opposed to artistic symbolism in her mind, cannot render. Point being that you can't express joy with the word joy. Because the word joy simply groups up all these instances, all these kinds of um, threads or specific patterns in the kind of infinite fabric of feeling and sees enough similarity between them to give them a common name, namely joy. But the fact is that a true joy is an unprecedented feeling. It's degrading to your joy to simply say, oh, I'm feeling joy. No, it's mm. joy in mm. a situation about specific things with specific stakes. Every joy is joyous by virtue of its absolute novelty, right? A true joy is something unprecedented, which is why when we chase a type of joy or bliss or pleasure, it dulls out with time because we're trying to recapture the initial singular experience and then getting less and less of it every time we repeat the same thing. So the point being that art is the only way for Langer to capture the singularity of the world of feeling, the way the world of feeling completely disrupts or completely, so what would I say, exceeds the capacities of the rational discursive mind, right? Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well put. And so there's a bunch of implication just in the passage I read that perhaps I should try and tease out. For example, when she writes... The expressiveness of art is like that of a symbol, not that of an emotional symptom. She's trying to say that art expresses forms, but it doesn't express them in the way that we think of like emotional catharsis in our daily life is expression. No. So right, she right. uses the example of a man just blind with rage. You know, you could imagine, what would that be like to somebody just sounding like Homer Simpson? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. incoherent and uh, inarticulate with rage, right? And she says, like, you know, if you say, well, how are you feeling? The man will have to collect himself at least to some extent and start to use his words. That's a thing we say to small children. Use your words. Don't hit. Yeah. 
And it's that whole transition from hitting and just like emotional reactivity, crying or screaming or sobbing or what have you, to being able to articulate a feeling. Now, it would be easy to misunderstand Langer and say, oh, so she's saying that art has to become kind of like cognitive and verbal right. in order to raise itself from the level of mere emotional reaction. But no, that's not what she thinks. It is simply that there's something that happens in the cognizing of feeling without language, that you can cognize, basically you can cognize feeling without language. That's what art does, but there needs to be that sort of essential kind of alchemy where you take your own feelings and emotions but then you do something to them such that they're not merely the emanation, like a stencil from the real of your feelings, but somehow sublimated in some way, although she doesn't use the word sublimated. Objectified. She says that, yes. art, famously, she says, art is the objectification of feeling. What she means by that is that the feeling is taken out of the flux of your living and given a form outside of you. You're turning feeling into an object, into a form, meaning a melody or a sculpture or yes. a building. And right. therefore, it exists beyond you. It exists outside of you. It testifies. Yes. That's what I mean. Like when I, you know, that thing that gave people hives there a few years ago, I said, if in the ruins of civilization, after the last human has died, there's still an old phonograph in the ruins playing, I think it was Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. There would still be sadness in the world. That's what I mean, is that the form yeah. of that melancholy, the form of that sadness would still exist. Right. And that is what shapes Samuel Barber more than Samuel Barber shapes it. That yeah. was, that's what yeah. made him. You, we are made by these aesthetic forces, right? Exactly. And it's being made by aesthetic forces, both the artist and the audience, that is the uh, kind of the point here. Yeah. And so like when she writes that... She's talking about a pattern of organic, interdependent, interdetermined tensions and resolutions, a pattern of infinitely complex activation and cadence. Such things are the deeper reaches that underlie the surface waves of our emotion and make human life a life of feeling instead of an unconscious metabolic existence interrupted by feelings. In other words, the difference between being a fucking person yeah. and just being whatever it is that this fucking nightmare hellscape neoliberal order is trying to turn us into a consumer yeah, or, or a even processor. just a product, a processor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. being a human means that those inchoate, those, those tensions and releases, those forces, that flux of things that's within us and without us, that is inside us, but we are a part of it in our world, that Dewey is enumerating beautifully. What the artist does is create something out of those things yeah. and raises it to something that is not simply an emanation of them, but something that goes beyond them and indeed goes beyond the audience. And... At this point, we can kind of make sense of what Langer says the arts are for. She says, this is on page nine, actually the bottom of the page that I was just reading. We speak of the feeling of or the feeling in a work of art, not the feeling it means. In other words, this objectification of feeling is not an interpretation of feeling. It's not a hot take on feeling. It is feeling itself. Yes, exactly. 
And we speak truly. A work of art presents something like a direct vision of vitality, emotion, subjective reality, a direct vision of the shocks and instabilities, the conflicts and resolutions that are the dramatic changes enacted upon the more enduring background of nature in human life. That's a line from Dewey. And then based on this, she pivots, and the first sentence of the next paragraph is, the primary function of art is to objectify feeling so we can contemplate it and understand it. It is the formulation of so-called inward experience, the inner life that is impossible to achieve by discursive thought because its forms, that is to say feelings forms, are incommensurable with the forms of language and all of its derivatives, e.g. mathematics, symbolic logic. Art objectifies the sentience and desire, self-consciousness and world consciousness, emotions and moods that are generally regarded as irrational because words cannot give us clear ideas of them. A little bit further down on page 10, she writes, art is not practical. It is neither philosophy nor science. It is not religion, morality, or even social comment, as many drama critics take comedy to be, and we might say also dramatists. What does it contribute to culture that could be of major importance? It merely presents forms, sometimes intangible forms, to imagination. So here, she sounds like she's saying something very close to Wild. nothing really. It Wild. does nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It is entirely useless. Yeah. It simply presents forms to imagination. That's it. But the argument she's making is basically a humanistic one, I think, which is what it is to be human is something that emerges from the contemplation of such forms. It says nothing about you being a good human or a bad human, but to be more fully human for good or ill. It's the difference between Homer kind of just blathering incoherently from his emotions and Homer being able to articulate and give form to his emotions, if only to reach for some artwork that has captured something like his emotion in order to say, I feel like, you know, like Homer might say, I feel like Macbeth after he realizes that he's screwed, that the witches screwed him over. You know, like just to be able to refer to these forms that exist. A world without art cannot give form to feelings. She says it in the last paragraph, the arts objectify subjective reality and subjectify outward experience of nature. Art education is the education of feeling, and a society that neglects it gives itself up to formless emotion. Yes. Bad art- Sounds a whole lot like the society we actually live in, doesn't it? Bad art is corruption of feeling. This is a large factor in the irrationalism which dictators and demagogues exploit. That's how her things <laughs> end. So there's your use of art. It's exactly what Wilde says at the end. He says, we can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he doesn't admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. In other words, you admire what transcends the logic of instrumentality. Yep. You do not place instrumentality in the end position of your means. The instrumentality is simply a means to an end and has only as much value as the end has innate value. So you create a yep. society that's instrumental in order to celebrate, admire something that transcends the instrumental. But if the instrumental has become, like in Technic, the ideal, you're just propelling yourself into inevitable kind of a nihilism. And that's Campagna's whole argument. When Wilde says all art is quite useless, he's saying precisely, I think, what Langer is saying here, is that art simply presents forms. 
And that brings me to the topic that I don't want to end without touching on, which is art and morality. So we mm -hmm. have problems with, you know, CEOs and technocrats and ideologues and um, neoliberals and all that. They're attacking art with these old kind of cliched arguments that you brought up. But there is an internal problem, which is that art is being policed now from within mm -hmm. on moral grounds. Mm -hmm. This is something I'm feeling very sharply these days because of something that's going on, you know, in a medium that I argue is a nascent form of art, role-playing games, but it's still very vulnerable because still nascent, where Wizards of the Coast, the owners of Dungeons & Dragons, have decided to revoke the old license that gave people the right to create materials for the game and put them on the internet. They're deauthorizing the old agreement and they're trying to put in a new agreement whereby they would basically own everything you create for the game. But for me, the clincher, the real problem is what they call the morality clause, which means that anything they deem to be immoral, they can strip it of its license and therefore basically just make it impossible for you to publish your material. Of course, the problem with handing the keys of morality to a big corporation should be fairly obvious, but somehow it's become not obvious to many people that we shouldn't yeah. give the right to police artistic content to some particular fucking corporate entity. That's somehow that's become a, a debatable thing. You may agree with the moral climate of today, but once you give them that right, and in 10 years, you may not agree anymore. And then mm -hmm. your little moral crusade, when it becomes the next heresy, well, guess who will be first against the wall? Yeah. This is what Wilde says. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express everything. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. Now, of course, he's being, he's not saying an artist doesn't have ethical sympathies as a person, but your ethical sympathies, this is a, E.M. Forster put it beautifully. He says, write with beliefs felt, not beliefs held. I think that that's a key thing. You know, you're a fervent evangelical Christian. You want to write a novel. Do you really want to write another supermarket freaking novel like that's made in order to convince evangelicals that they're the top dogs? No. You want to create a real novel. You want to create something like Dostoevsky created. Dostoevsky also was a Christian. But he did not write with his beliefs held. He put his beliefs in the pot, in the fray, along with everything else, and allowed them to be like systematically destroyed by his own art or challenged at the deepest level. The point is that this is precisely the zone, art, the zone. This is what we moderns have. That's the zone we have for being able to give form to every feeling such that we can see it and discuss it as a, as a culture, as a community. And if we're going to start policing ourselves and even worse, censoring ourselves in order to avoid the torches and pitchforks of the ever-rabid mob, well, then art is literally going to disappear. It's going to be reduced to a simple instrument of capitalism. Yep. And James Raggi, who is one of my favorite game designers, he, he is truly an artist. He is absolutely hated in many quarters because he'll push the envelope in many ways. And he has written... I like mean, he's, violating taboos. Yeah, and, exactly. And, that sort yeah, of thing. Like really pushing it. Yeah. yeah. He made a statement recently against this morality clause in the new license. And his answer to the question of why would you create art that transgresses like this? Why would you create art that does this, that, or the other thing? And his answer is, fuck you. That's why. 
That's the spirit. <laughs> you want you want to live in a community, in a culture, and you want to work in an industry where it will be recognized that when it comes to artistic expression, the artist can express everything. If we don't allow ourselves to express everything in art, then everything else will fall apart. So when you talk about the prospect of art simply disappearing, that's a tolerably apocalyptic scenario, uh, and yet one that haunts my imagination. You know, a lot of my feelings of despair the last few years when I'm in a despairing mood come from the feeling of betrayal. As I said right at the beginning in my reading from Gell's essay, how the methodological philistinism that Gell was sort of like cautiously proffering almost in a, in a thought experiment kind of way now is just the default of academic humanists, people who are supposed to be the ones in charge of aesthetic education, the ones in charge of midwifing those encounters between subjectivities. That's our fucking job. And as a class, as a profession, we have as one turned our back on that. And I have the greatest feelings of anger and betrayal and bitterness around that. And I've been trying to work with that, trying to move beyond that because it's past a certain point simply not helpful. But it can be really hard when you sit through countless academic meetings as a university professor and the enabling assumptions of everybody in the room and all conversations about curriculum, about the exhibition of arts and so on, is all underwritten in advance by exactly this kind of crude instrumentalizing and moralizing understanding of art that we've been talking about in this show. And I have often asked myself, 
what's to be done about this. And I've said on this show many times that starting weird studies, so you and I had slightly different motivations for doing weird studies, sort of similar though. Yeah. Mine, very much a function of the environment in which I work, uh, almost a vocational therapy project uh, where I would get to talk about art as if art actually matters. And one of the things we read uh, for this conversation is Neil Gaiman's commencement address to some university or other. It's called Make Good Art. And mm -hmm. that basically is his advice. <laughs> you know, the show, at least at the beginning, really felt like a message in a bottle. The kind of conversation that we're having here, I know that there are many fewer people who want to hear about that shit now than there were even 10 years ago. There's been a dramatic change in the university, the neoliberalization of the university, the mm. spread of the ethos of technique into all parts of humanistic and non-humanistic education. As I say, message in bottles. And Neil Gaiman has a nice line about this. He says, a freelance life, a life in the arts is sometimes like putting messages in bottles on a desert island and hoping that someone will find one of your bottles and open it and read it and put something in a bottle that will wash its way back to you appreciation or a commission or money or love. And you have to accept that you may put out hundreds of things for every bottle that winds up coming back. Very true. For me, Weird Studies is the bottle that came back. Yeah. It was started very much in a spirit of let's just have a conversation, build it, and they may come. And you know, it's a source of continual delight and inspiration to me. And I, I do not use the word inspiration lightly to talk about like the honest and heartfelt response of artists and people who simply have a strong connection to art, to the kinds of things we talk about on this show. And so in many ways, a lot of my despair or feelings of anger have eased off simply because I realized that the perspective that I have as a mid-career academic is going to lead to certain kind of deformations of vision. I might be inclined to look at things in an unnecessarily dismal way. There is a body of people out there, a warm living body of sentiment for art in exactly the way that we've been talking about. People who get it, to use that horrible expression. But they are not represented by these institutions. The institution is not their face. Yeah. The official life of our culture does not represent them. They are, to some extent, invisible. And yet this is the group who keep me going, who yeah. give me the feeling that it isn't all for nothing. What would we call such a group? Perhaps because I wrote a book about counterculture, it seems to me that what we're talking about is a counterculture, a real counterculture, not at least as yet um, commodified counterculture, which is to say, it's not a counterculture that's making anybody a ton of money, although we are making a bit of money through our Patreon. And thank you all for those of you who support us. Those of you who don't, what the fuck is wrong with you? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Joking. Uh, but, you know, it's not about the money, right? It's about the doing of the thing and the making of those connections. And that's what keeps us going. So in this context, I want to, you know, we're probably close to the end of this conversation. I want to finish up by talking about an essay that appeared in, I think, the New Republic years ago, like a decade ago, by Leon Wieseltier, who's the New Republic literary editor. Uh, and he was, you know, as I recall, I used to read the New Republic back in the day when I was a serious and political young man. And uh, as I recall, 
Leon Wieselt here is a remarkably pompous individual, somebody from whom pretense sort of oozed right out of his very pores. Although I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. I have been called pretentious in no less august an organ than the Times of London. That was our big news of this week. We both were, I think. Anyway, uh, this essay, however, really spoke to me when I read it about a decade ago. And I pulled it out for this show. I think you read it too. Yeah. And he makes exactly this point. Perhaps the arts now are a kind of counterculture. Not a counterculture in the sense of like old fashions, you know, sex and drugs, dramatic haircuts. Like it's not that kind of counterculture necessarily he's talking about, but simply in the sense of like a kind of strategic retreat and regrouping. It's not defeat. I mean, let's face it. We in the art side have gotten our asses comprehensively kicked in the last half century or so from political forces, from social forces, moral forces, economic, technological. Everybody's hand is raised against us. But under those circumstances, perhaps that's a beautiful thing. Anyway, this is what Wieseltier writes. I mean, he starts off by saying, has there ever been a moment in American life when the humanities were cherished less? And has there ever been a moment in American life when the humanities were needed more? And I look back, I'm like, oh, those were the golden days of 2013. Yeah, 2013, yeah. When we were much, much more <laughs> tolerant yeah. and open-minded on, this, on these issues. But anyway, whatever. And he, he goes on to say that, you know, for him, commitment to the humanities is nothing less, I'm quoting here, than an act of intellectual defiance, of cultural dissidence. And he continues, for decades now... In America, we've been witnessing a steady and sickening denigration of humanistic understanding and humanistic method. We live in a society inebriated by technology, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, you know, there's a lot of fairly straightforward, almost sane affair kind of railing against our technologies, our smartphones, (laughs) our fax machines, (laughs) Uh, you know. But he goes on to say, our reason has become an instrumental reason and is no longer the reason of the philosophers with its ancient magnitude of intellectual ambition, its belief that the proper subjects of human thought are the largest subjects and that the mind in one way or another can penetrate to the very principles of natural life and human life. Well said. And those are some major things that we give up when we adopt this sad, shrunken, instrumentalist view of art. And he goes on about scientism. He makes an argument that you've made many times. Even the question of the place of science in human existence is not a scientific question. It's philosophical, which is to say a humanistic question. Right. And then finally, the punchline. Keep in mind, this too was a talk given to graduates of some institution of higher learning. I forget which one. He says... As Bernard Williams once remarked, humanity is a name not merely for a species, but for a quality. You who have elected to devote yourselves to the study of literature and languages and art and music and philosophy and religion and history, you are stewards of that quality. Goes on. You are the resistance. You have had the effrontery to choose interpretation over calculation and to recognize that calculation cannot provide an accurate picture or a profound picture or a whole picture of self-interpreting beings such as ourselves. 
and I commend you for it. Do not believe the rumors of the obsolescence of your path. There's no greater bulwark against the twittering acceleration of American consciousness than the encounter with a work of art and the experience of a text or an image. You are the representatives, the saving remnants of that encounter and that experience, and of the serious study of that encounter and that experience, which is to say, you are the counterculture. Perhaps culture is now the counterculture. There is one nagging question, one little refuge for the cynic in us to throw everything we've just been saying into the garbage. And that is the idea that art, as we've been discussing it, is simply a historically contrived, contingent object that was born in the late 18th century. People came up with the concept of fine art and will eventually disappear. And I find that to be a, a real question, a question that we need to touch on. And what I would like to propose as a way of retrieving or of honoring or of validating a universalist conception of art without losing sight of the historical facts of the matter, right? Because no one spoke right. about art in the way we do until, well, it began in the Renaissance, but it's not really until the late 18th century that we start talking about art the way we do. Quite. I would offer the following hypothesis, which I believe bears out, but I don't have the time I don't even have the expertise to do the work of doing that. So somebody else will do it for us. <laughs> what we call art today, the way we talk about it, the way we define, the way we've been talking about art in this conversation is, I believe, an ancient way of talking about things. It's often been said that the word art in the Middle Ages meant any type of craft, any type of doing. Art is making things. So you'd have the the mechanical arts, and you'd have this type of art and that other type, and the seven liberal arts and all that. And it's only very recently in history that art contracts to mean what the specific aesthetic sort of work that we're talking about. I would like to propose that, that this is actually cause for worry, because what I, I think has happened is that whereas a bunch of different activities were originally conceived in the way that we are conceiving art now. Mm. Now, it is only that specific area of activity, what we call the fine arts, that still allows for this way of apprehending things. Mm. This is something we've said before. It's a way of apprehending the world which places meaning out in the world, which makes feeling not just a, a kind of electrical discharge in the brain, but rather the kind of ocean from which the world emerges. Right? I was really reminded earlier when you were reading uh, Langer's passage there on, on the fabric, feeling as a kind of fabric, of Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. It's very similar, that there's a kind of intricate latticework of feeling undergirding our everyday consciousness. This is a, a little short passage from a, a novel called Lauris by Eugene Vodolaskin, a Russian novelist. Yes, I'm quoting a Russian in this time of tribulation. It's almost as bad as if I were quoting a German during <laughs> World War I, God forbid. So uh, in this novel, this healer, a herbalist, is we're, we're learning his story. And Vodolaskin writes the following. The herbalist's name is Christopher. He says, Christopher did not exactly believe in herbs. More likely, he believed God's help would come through any herb, 
for a specific matter, just as that help comes through people. Both are instruments. He did not ponder why each of the herbs he knew was associated with strictly defined qualities. He considered that question frivolous. Christopher understood who had established that association, and that was all he needed to know. Quote. So we're talking here about a medieval art, herbalism, which to the herbalist of that time was conceived very much in terms that we would use for describing the autistic process. There is a who behind it. There is meaning inherent in it. There's discovery in it. There's trust required of it. The art conceals the artist. The art is bigger than the artist. The art uses the artist. I believe that a lot of everyday things used to be done in a mentality that approaches mm. what we now reserve for artistic processes. And I think that we should take that as a sign of the contraction of the human soul under the regime of pseudo-modernity, because I think there's another modernity that's very different, and maybe try to recover not just the artfulness of art, and it's bad enough that we have to argue for that, but ultimately the goal would be to recover the artfulness of all sorts of things we do in the world for all sorts of instrumental reasons. And restoring that artfulness wouldn't imply finding some new and better instrumentality, but simply subordinating instrumentality once more to a meaning that transcends it. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.